Author Gary Smalley uh, tells the story of two moose hunters in northern Canada who shot an unusually large moose. And the two hunters had a problem. They couldn't pack this trophy animal out of the woods. It was just too big for their pack horses. And, but they had a solution. They had a cell phone. So they called a small seaplane in. And when the pilot heard about the huge bull moose, he wasn't sure about taking it out. He told the hunters, I don't know if I can take off with that much weight. We've done this before, they assured him. Don't worry. So they strapped the moose in, draping it across both pontoons, but again the pilot begged off, look how far we are from sinking below the waterline. He objected. The pilot um, uh, knew that it, how much energy it would take for that plane to lift off. Relax, persisted the hunters. We've done this before. Trust us. Finally, the pilot agreed, and he gunned the engine, and he took off uh, down his runway of water and crashed into the treetops at the end of the lake. Debris, uh, debris was flying everywhere, and the moose carcass was lodged in the branches of a tall pine tree. Down on the shoreline, one dazed hunter called out to the other. He said, hey, George, how did we do? Well, George replied, we made it 50 feet further than we did last year. <laughs> I know it's a stupid story. <laughs> oh, goose. <laughs> a moose. Yeah, not a, it wouldn't be, yeah, that would be a big goose, wouldn't it? <laughs> but here's the lesson for all of us. When we fail, we don't have to keep on failing. When we fail, we don't have to keep on failing. Failing is never permanent. It's never a permanent condition for a follower of Jesus Christ. The fact is, we can learn from our failures and use them as stepping stones to moments of great blessing. The question is, how do we do that? How do we recover from failure and turn it into a stepping stone towards a victory? Well, there's a story in the Old Testament that shows us how to do that. It's actually a love story that begins with failure, but the end is greater than anyone could have ever imagined. And it's the story of Ruth. One of the greatest pictures of grace presented to us in all of Scripture. The biblical account uh, uh, focuses on three main characters. That's it. Ruth, a pagan girl from Moab who received an abundant measure of grace, Naomi, her mother-in-law, who found herself away from God and in desperate need of returning to God, and Boaz, a kinsman of Naomi's who provided hope and redemption for them as they returned to Bethlehem. And the central theme of Ruth is the unmerited favor and grace of God even to those who are undeserving. Now, the opening verses provide insight to the conditions of Moab and the dangers associated with dwelling there. We find Elimelech had decided to move his family from Bethlehem to the land of Moab, just across the Jordan River to the east of the land of promise. But Moab was not a favorable place for those who trusted God. The environment of Moab created an atmosphere that made it difficult to live for the Lord and continue serving him. It was a land inhabited by people who worshipped idols. 
who served strange gods. Descendants of Moab, the son of Lot, born out of an ungodly relationship with his daughter. They were a rebellious and sinful people who attacked and sought to defeat Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness. Now, the world in which we live also appeals to the, to the flesh, doesn't it? But in the end, the Bible says it always brings devastation. It always brings defeat. And as we begin our study, I want us to talk about the realities of living in a foreign land. When hard times come, maybe you've heard this statement before, when hard times come, be a student, not a victim. I had someone tell me that many years ago. Just stopping to think about that statement for a moment will show you the wisdom of those words. When hard times come, be a student, not a victim. A a victim says, why did this happen to me? A student says, "What what can I learn from this? A victim complains that they're being treated unfairly. A student thanks God that they're not treated as they deserve to be treated. A victim tries to get even with with those who have hurt them. A student seeks to serve others in the midst of difficulty. A victim believes the game of life is stacked against them. A student believes God is at work, even in the worst of situations. Now, the perceptive listener can think of a hundred other comparisons, but the point, I think, is clear. We rarely control what happens to us but we can always choose how we respond. Sometimes we will make the wrong choice and pay a heavy price for our mistakes. Often we, d- we won't learn the right lessons until we look back and we see how God is at- was at work even in those trials. Something like that happened to a woman named Naomi. In our story, you can find uh, this story in, in the Old Testament uh, right near the book of Judges. It is a love story that starts with misery, but ends with joy. So let me set the scene this way. This is a story of anxiety and fear and love and commitment, and it inflames our imagination. It soothes our soul. It's a story that begins with despair and ends with delight. A lot of mixed emotions in this story, isn't there? But this tiny book, just four chapters, 85 verses, covers a vast range of human emotions starting with heartache, then moving to intrigue, and then romance, and then happiness. And along the way, we discover that God is always behind the scenes, which means the real star of the book is the Lord, who works in and through and sometimes in spite of decisions that we make in our life. So the opening verses set the scene for us. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kelon. They were uh, Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah, and when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One woman 
One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Malon and Kilion died. And this left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. Now from this story, we can learn three contemporary lessons that I think will help us to navigate the hard times in life. And the first is, hard times can happen anytime. The book of Ruth opens with a statement that anchors this story to a particular time and place. In the days when the judges ruled Israel, severe famine came upon the land. This means the story took place after Joshua's death and before Saul became king. Now when we read the book of Judges, uh, we may be tempted to think that this was a rather godless time, but that would not be entirely correct. We should think of it as a time when every person, now this is how the book of Judges in chapter 21 verse 25 describes itself, it was a time when every person did what was right in their own eyes. Kind of living in that time again, aren't we? As long as the judges ruled, people served the Lord. But when the judge died, the Jews quickly returned to idolatry. It was this recurring cycle of obedience, disobedience, judgment, suffering, desperation, returning to God. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 24, Moses warned the people that if they refused to obey the Lord, God would curse the land. The Lord will change the rain that falls on your land into powder and dust will pour down from the sky until you are destroyed. That was Moses' warning. That means the famine in the promised land didn't just happen. It was more of a, than a natural disaster. God used the famine to send a message to his people. And when people ask me, do you think God can speak to us today? I tell them, you don't have to worry about that. God has your number on speed dial. He can ring your phone any time of the day or night, and when he calls, you won't be able to put him on hold. God knows how to get through to us, doesn't he? Anytime. Here's the second point of the story. Hard times force us to make hard choices. If you are a Limelech, what do you do when a famine impacts your family? Well, the land around Bethlehem was some of the most fertile ground in the promised land. A man who worked hard and could harvest enough each year, take care of his family, um, did well. So what do you do when a famine hits? For Elimelech, the answer was simple. He took his family and he moved them to Moab because it was a land of good soil, abundant rainfall, and if the famine had not hit uh, that region, perhaps he could stay for a few months or maybe a year or two. The fact that he was an Ephratite may throw more land, a light on the matter. Uh, Ephrata was the old name for Bethlehem. It may imply that he came from a distinguished background. Maybe from a family with a long history in this region. That wouldn't necessarily guarantee that he had money, but it does suggest something to us about his background. And it appears from the text that things worked out for a while. Evidently, they settled in the fields of Moab and found plenty to eat. The famine of Bethlehem was now a distant memory in their minds, uh, but soon Elimelech dies. 
We aren't told why or how, only that he died in Moab, leaving Naomi without a husband and these two boys without a father. And evidently they married Moabite women, and uh, Orpah and the other named Ruth, and the two sons also die a few years later and are buried in Moab. Well, suddenly 10 years have passed. I read about a woman who, knowing that she was about to die, wrote her own obituary, and she summed up her 69 years this way. She said, I was born, I blinked, and it was over. We could all pretty much say the same thing, couldn't we? Sometimes the days seem long, but the years seem short, especially as you begin to age. They get shorter for some reason, don't they? Verse 1 notes that Elimelech intended to emigrate to Moab for a while. Never, uh, meaning he never intended to leave Judah forever. This was a temporary move to a foreign country under great stress. But God was very clear that the Israelites were to have nothing to do with the Moabites. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 6, we read, No Ammonite or Moabite of any of, or any of their descendants for ten generations may be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. These nations did not welcome you with food or water when you came out of Egypt. Instead, they hired Balaam, son of Baron, Pethor, and distant Aram uh, to curse you. For, but the Lord, your God, refused to listen to Balaam. He turned the intended curse into a blessing because the Lord your God loves you. As long as you live, you must never promote the welfare and the prosperity of the Ammonites or the Moabites. Now, I suspect that Elimelech didn't intend to leave the Lord by migrating to Moab. It was just a reckless move on his part. Moab was this ancient foe of Israel. Moab was the place where Lot had an incestuous relationship with his daughters. He was leaving the land of blessing to live among the pagans on the east side of the Dead Sea. And he and his family would be exposed then to Moabite religion with all of its degrading idol worship and gross sexual perversion. And I think Elimelech understood the risk but considered the move temporary and expedient for the sake of his family. You see, the problem in Israel was ultimately not the lack of bread. The problem was lack of confidence and obedience to Jehovah God. This was not the first famine in the land that flowed with milk and honey, and it wouldn't be the last. But good motives can't cancel out the impact of bad decisions. Good motives can't cancel out the impact of bad decisions. Not long ago, a principal spoke to a group of students at a Christian school about the importance of obedience. And to make his point, he mentioned the institutional rules that they must obey, such as rules about what to wear and what not to wear and designated curfew times and things like that. And when asked if they needed to agree with the rules, quite a few of the students said yes. But that's not necessarily the right answer, replied the principal. What matters is not whether you like the rules or agree with them. The only question is, will you obey them? You are free to have your own opinion, but you are not free to disobey without consequences. 
You see, motives matter. Real, in real life, obedience matters more. We can't run from our problems because our problems tend to follow us wherever we go. A change of scenery doesn't always produce a change of heart. And whatever we were before is what we will be wherever we go next. We all feel the urge to change things when we encounter problems. We want a new spouse or new children or a new job or a new career. We may dream of moving into a new house or into a new neighborhood. If our church doesn't go the way we like, we want a new pastor. <laughs> I hope that's not the case just yet. I just got here, okay? We think if only we could just make a fresh start, things would improve. And sometimes that's true, and, and it's not the change. It's not that change is bad. After all, we live in a changing world. But change can be ex an excuse for not facing the problems of life head on. Running away from our troubles rarely makes things better. Elimelech thought he would go to Moab and stay until the famine passed and then come back home. But check out those three graves that are in Moab now. That's where he's buried along with his two sons. His wrong decision meant that he would never make it back home. Elimelech lost his life while seeking a livelihood and found a grave where he sought a home. Here's the third key point that I want you to recall. The hard times prepare us for a great work of grace. Christian author Oswald Chambers wrote about the dance of circumstance, by which he meant the hand of God working through seemingly random events. Who raised up the judges? God did. Who sent the famine? God did. Who gave this, them safe passage into Moab? God did. Who decreed the three men of the family should die there? God did. As far as we know, God never speaks directly to Elimelech, yet he is the unseen hand that is moving behind all of the events. Whatever else we may say about life, don't ever forget that God oversees the tiniest details of our life. Nothing escapes God's notice. And even the most unlikely events are part of God's plan for us. When the family left Bethlehem, there were four of them, three men, one woman, Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Chilion. But now Naomi was buried has buried three of the men in the mountains of Moab. And when she discusses this situation with Orpah and Ruth, <clears throat> Naomi declares that God has turned his hand against her. She's become pretty angry at God. Skip down to verse 13 for a moment in that first chapter. Naomi says, Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. So in what sense is Naomi prepared for a great work of God's grace? As our text ends in the first five verses here, Naomi is still in Moab. She is far from home, figuratively and spiritually. She's coping with the loss of her husband and her two sons, she 
is where she shouldn't be. She's in a pagan land. She's separated from God's people. She's facing the consequences of her husband's unwise decision. She is now an older widow in the company of two younger widows, and it was not an ideal place to be in any sense of the word. Now, we can write over this story uh, in big letters the word hopeless, because that's what it looked like, hopeless. Naomi is stuck in Moab. She's a widow with no hope of having another child with two younger widows by her side, and these two younger women are not Jews. They're Moabites. And as far as Naomi is concerned, not only does she have no future, but neither do they if they stay with her. See, part of the challenge in reading this book is that we know how the story ends, if you've read the book. We face the same issue when we read a story like Joseph's story in Genesis, right? How much did Joseph know about the end of the story when his brothers cast him into a pit in Genesis 37? The answer is nothing. He couldn't see beyond that moment. Ask the same question when he's carted off by the Midianites and then sold as a slave to Potiphar. How much did he know about the future when Potiphar's wife falsely accused him of having an affair with her? Or when Potiphar had him thrown into jail or when the cupbearer promised to remember him but instead forgot him while he languished in this Egyptian prison? The answer is the same in each case. He could not see the future. See, we like to repeat the words of Genesis 50, uh, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people, as if that explains Joseph's endurance during the hard times. But Joseph had no advanced knowledge that he was, that he who was a Hebrew slave would eventually become second in command in Egypt. When I'm asked by people, does you think God has a blueprint for my life? I like to reply, yes, but there's only one copy, and it's locked up in the second floor of the administration building in heaven. And I don't know any way to get a copy of that for you. You see, we aren't given advance notice of what tomorrow will bring, do we? That's true for all of us, whether we're rich or poor, young or old, new or Christian or mature believer. We must all take life as it comes one day at a time. Naomi still believes in God, even in a foreign land, cut off from her own people, but she's bitter. She's bitter at the Lord, at least, but, she, but at least she has not turned against him. She is a bruised believer, brokenhearted at what she has lost. And if we callously say, well, she got what's coming to her, we only reveal how little we understand about God's great heart. God is rich in grace, and his pockets are, are deep and full of mercy. God has not given up on Naomi. No matter what she may think about him, he has big plans that are about to begin to unfold. And little does she know that one day she will hold a baby in her lap who will be the grandfather of King David. 
Still less could she imagine that her daughter-in-law Ruth, a Moabite woman, will end up in the line of the Messiah. Her sadness will be turned to joy. And she will discover that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. But all that is yet to come. So we're going to leave the story right there for today and content ourselves with the thought that we serve a God who can take the worst that can happen in life and turn it into the best because that's the kind of God he is. Give God time to work in your life, in the good times and in the difficult times. God knows what he's doing, even when we don't have a clue. So until next week, let's pray. Heavenly Father, how blessed we are to have your word, which reminds us in so many ways what a faithful God you are and how necessary it is to trust you in all things. So help us to examine our lives so that we may set our house in order, for we want to be in the middle of your will, moment by moment, day by day. And we ask it all in Jesus' name.